1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm very excited to be here with you all again this week. I hosted last week and I think the week before, or maybe it was the week before that. At any rate, it is the last show that I'm going to be hosting for a while. I'm going to leave you in the very capable hands of Sally and Ian uh, for the better part of August, but I will be back, and I'm excited about the show we have for you today. I do want to give a quick shout out to my husband. It's his birthday, so happy birthday. And uh, we're going to be talking about subject tests and also the latest admissions trends. That's going to be our last segment today. We're going to kick things off with a discussion about the differences between federal work study and student employment, and I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, Tara Piantanita Kelly. Hi, Tara. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining today. And um, when students think about the work that they're going to do during their time as college students, if they're thinking about that, uh, I'm not sure that they always separate out federal work study from just regular old student employment. So my first question to you is, what exactly is work study? What does that mean? Well, work study
2: is just kind of a general term. Um, It's a way for students to earn money to pay for school through um, part-time on-campus and and even sometimes off-campus jobs. So it's just, it gives the students an opportunity to to get some work experience and earn a paycheck to help pay for some of their uh, costs.
1: Yeah, pretty straightforward. So then I guess my next question is, is whether federal work study is different from kind of quote-unquote regular work study or quote-unquote, student employment?
2: Yeah. So actually, federal work study is uh, its a own little separate being because it is a federally funded program, um, and it's for students who um, show a eligibility for need-based aid. So the student has to complete the, the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA, and they have to show that they, uh, the school will determine if they uh, qualify for any need-based aid because federal work study is a need-based financial aid program. Um, So, you know, from a school's perspective, uh, federal work-study funding covers a portion of a federal work-study student's paycheck, while the school pays for the whole paycheck if the student isn't on federal work-study, if they're on just, like, regular work-study. Sometimes it's called institutional work-study or just regular student employment.
1: Got it. Got it. Uh, So, generally, then, I would guess that Federal work study is work that you will always be done on the school campus. It's not like you can get federal work study from the restaurant in the neighboring town or anything like that.
2: Right, right. There are some federal work study um, programs where the student does work off campus. Um, So, I mean, it it is possible that that's the case, but yes, just having the student go to their regular, you know, local fast food restaurant or something and, and say I want to work do federal work study here yeah that doesn't work
1: <laughs> that doesn't generally work all right so we, no. <laughs> if, if if a student gets a financial aid award and it shows two thousand dollars in federal work study and that's part of the award does that mean that they automatically get the two thousand dollars I think I know the answer but I'm going to ask the question anyway. <laughs> right
2: right no it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it just means that the student is eligible to earn up to two thousand dollars by working in a you know on a work study job at, at school so the and the jobs aren't guaranteed they're just like any other job on campus the student needs to apply and be hired and fill out all the regular employment paperwork and then they get a paycheck um, so that you know, pertains both to the federal work study, but then actually to all jobs on campus. Um, so no, right. it's not, it's not, uh, the $2,000 is not guaranteed, um, doesn't guarantee a job. Um, it just means that that's how much they can earn uh, from a federal work study job for that coming year.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, if it was guaranteed, it would be a grant award. It wouldn't have need the title of work study. Um, right. That's not right. how work works, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what happens if a student, you, were, you made the point uh, a minute ago that work-study, federal work-study is need-based. So, if you don't qualify for need, then you're not going to get a federal work-study award. Does that mean, if you don't qualify for that, does that mean that those on-campus jobs are not available to, to those students?
2: Um, not necessarily, no. Um, not all schools get federal work-study funds um, from the federal student aid programs. And the ones that do get some federal work-study funds, um, they only get a limited amount. And and schools usually have um, a lot more jobs than they have federal work-study eligible students. So, um, you know, even even if the student isn't eligible for federal work-study, even if they didn't even fill out the FAFSA, they can usually still find some part-time uh, work-study jobs on campus.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember that from my time in school. And in fact, little perhaps it's TMI, I don't know. But when I graduated from college, I moved to Boston and I didn't have a job. And one of the first things I did was go to... Um, the, the jobs area, and I can't remember, the employment office at Harvard. And there were tons of part-time jobs available um, at both Harvard and MIT that I got to fill the gap between moving to Boston and getting, um, and getting an actual job where I was on a salary and everything. So my, my experience would certainly be that there's tons of work available and way more work than there are students available to fill it. Um, yeah. in, in your experience, yeah. is, is the pay different for federal work study than it is for regular student employment? Um, nope. For, from the student's perspective,
2: almost everything is exactly the same, whether they're on federal work study or regular student employment. Um, you know, the pay is the same. Everything's the same. Um, the only real difference for students on federal work study is that um, the school is using some of the federal work study funding to help cover the students' pay, so it doesn't really affect the student at all. Um, But here is one thing that is a little bit different, and that is that any money that the student earns on a federal work-study job, um, that isn't counted as income uh, in that calendar year when they do the FAFSA in subsequent years. So, you know, if the student earned $1,000 on federal work study, it does, that $1,000 doesn't count as student income, but if they earned $1,000 on, you know, regular student employment or at any kind of other employment, that $1,000 will count as as student income on the FAFSA later on. So that's kind of really the only difference from from the student's perspective.
1: Right, exactly. They're not going to be paid a different rate, but that is a difference when you're filling out the FAFSA. Uh, And we touched Mm -hmm. on this earlier, but I don't know if you have anything to add to my question about whether, I was actually asking if you could just go down the street to a restaurant off campus and get a work-study job, but the larger question is really whether or not work-study jobs are always on campus, and I think you said not necessarily, just curious if there's anything you would add there. Right, right.
3: So,
2: Federal work study has some requirements for like community service, and and you know uh, so it's possible that you know a student might be in a federal work study job at their at you know uh, at their school, but their job is to go do you know reading for young kids you know at a at a local public school that could mm-hmm. be their federal work study job, and it's not technically I mean it's, it's they they get paid for on you know on campus. Working on campus, but their actual location where they do the work is is off campus, so that mm-hmm. is not um yeah that that's pretty common
1: okay so yeah. You know, I think message here could be for some students that federal work study does not mean you have to work in the dining hall. There are so many different options. Mm -hmm. And like you just shared, right, you can um, you might be technically working a job that's based on campus, but you're going out into the local community. Um, There's all kinds of interesting things that could be attached to federal work study. um, Right. Which leads.
2: And here's a little. Oh, I was just going to give a little fun tid- tidbit since Please. you mentioned that you did you did that. Um, I think if you were to contact um, any of the financial aid administrators at any of the campuses throughout the U.S. and ask them, how did you get your start, they probably got their start as a federal work-study student or a work-study student in the financial aid office. So I think that's fairly common in the admissions uh, realm as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody got their start, you know, working on campus as an undergrad part-time, and then when they graduated, they're like, hey, I kind of like this. I'll I'll stick with it. I I know that I personally have recruited two different work-study students, you know, from an undergrad, and they are now college financial aid directors, so it's not uncommon to to do something while you're doing work-study and then You know, when you graduate, you go on to kind of continue doing that same thing that you were doing uh, in your work study job. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It's pretty common.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. What you're doing in that case could lead to your future career. So something else Mm -hmm. to think about. Um, last question, and I, I mentioned going to the employment office after I had graduated, but how does a student find a job for federal work-study or even regular student employment? What kind of tips could you offer students out there? Um, well, Most? Schools have some kind of electronic
2: job board that shows the information on the positions that are currently available. Um, And if you can't find it on a school's website, you can usually call, you know, the the employment office or even the financial aid office. They would be able to tell you where to find that as well. And um, then they'll, you know, when when you find it, you can see everything that's available. And um, I always tell students that You know, if they want the best options for a job that they might actually like, then they should look early and apply early. By, you know, by a couple of weeks into the school year, uh, many of the more desirable jobs are already filled by those early birds. Um, But there are almost always jobs that are available in, like, the cafeteria and in grounds maintenance uh, throughout the year. So, you know, here's a message to parents. If if you have a student in college and and you want them to get a part-time job and they say, oh, there's no jobs available, you know, tell them
1: to go check out the cafeteria. Area. there's usually
2: jobs available throughout
1: the year there. Yes. In fact, I could share again with our listeners that some of my work-study jobs over the years included catering, which was brutal, so hard. I, my very first night of catering, I worked until four o'clock in the morning. That was not so fun. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> no. I know. It was terrible. I also made sandwiches at a school-owned sub shop that was in uh, on the first floor of my dorm, that was sort of tricky because you'd have people coming by and wanting free sandwiches, and that was difficult. Um, yeah, those were two of my tougher ones. And Then I got a job at the uh, student union, and I sold magazines and candy and movie tickets, and that one was kind of fun. I got to read all the yeah. magazines for free. So definitely lots
2: my, my, of options. My work study, <laughs> my work study job, and I taught flute lessons in, in our little uh, music school. So that was my work ah. study job. It was awesome. <laughs>
1: that's much cooler than any of the jobs that I had in work-study, I will say. I I don't know that I was late to the the party. I think I was when I got the catering gig, and I learned my lesson there that, no, this is not a good work-study job for me. I need something different. Um, This isn't going to cut it. And uh, every year after that, my work-study position got better. So I will second what you're saying about um, being an earlier bird when it comes to that kind of thing. Tara, thank you so much for uh, all this great information today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right. Thanks. Um, Before we go to break, I wanted to tell you all about this cool new thing that I discovered called Care Of. All right, so I'm heading into my busy season. I want to make health and wellness a priority because I'm not always great about eating right at this time of year, and I really need to manage my stress levels, keep my energy up if I'm going to make it through what is just kind of a sprint to the finish. So for all of you seniors gearing up for all of this – um. Listen up because it is a little, it can get a little bit intense. Um, so, I discovered this Care of, and it's a company that provides vitamins. And my challenge with vitamins is always I don't really know what I need, I don't know what to take. I buy these huge bottles, I forget to take them. Um, so, I go to their website, uh, which is takecareof.com, and you take this cool quiz, took like five minutes where they ask me all about my goals and my habits, like how much sleep am I getting. Am I looking for healthier hair, skin, and nails, which let's be honest, who isn't always looking for a healthier appearance, but I'd like to be healthier as well. Then they put a plan together for me based on my answers. So one of the cool things was that I live in Massachusetts, and because we're so far above the equator, they recommended vitamin D. It's almost like they knew that we have so many gray days in a row here, and I really need that sunlight, um, which was kind of cool. Then they ship it all to me, and it's all separated into daily packs, which is really cool, very easy, convenient, personal, um, has my name on the packs. uh, And I only take what I need, and I don't have a lot of extra waste, which is also cool so parents of seniors about to head off to college or parents of future college students um, could be a really great care package so if you're interested in checking it out um, go to takecareof.com and if you enter promo code college coach they're going to give you 25% off of your first offer so again takecareof.com and promo is college coach all one word and they're going to give you 25% off your first offer if you're interested so check it out uh, all right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're talking about subject tests. So don't go away.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com/forward/slash/voiceamerica.
4: visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. I am eager to talk to you all about subject tests. It's something that I feel like people worry about when they don't have to or don't worry about when they should be worrying about it. Uh, and I am, as always, excited to welcome my colleague, Kenan Dick, who is, uh, in addition to currently working with me, a former admissions officer at both Swarthmore and Drexel. Hi, Kenan. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It's, I feel like it's been a little bit since you've been on the show, and I'm happy to have you back. Thank you. Good to be back. All right. Well, we have uh, a bunch of things that we are hoping to share today. So let's start with the basics. And that is, what are subject tests? That's a good question.
5: Um, So subject (laughs) tests are run by the same company that does the SAT. So that's the College Board. And instead of um, the traditional SAT that most people are used to, These are actually one-hour exams in a specific area of knowledge, so things like physics or U.S. history or Japanese or world history, so they have a very specific subject that they're testing on. So the the range of options, there's 20 different exams that students can choose from, um, but they can take up to three different exams on any given test date and be able to kind of show their and demonstrate their um, ability in a specific area. Um, The the interesting thing about the the test dates, however, is that not all of the exams are offered for every test date, so you do have to be careful about how, if if you're planning on taking subject tests, when you're going to take them and make sure that they're going to be offered during the dates that you're intending to take them. So you do have to do a little bit more planning than you would do with with a normal SAT or ACT. And one of the questions that I often get is that um, you can't take them both at the same time. So you can either take your subject tests or you can take the SAT, but you can't take both on the same test date.
1: Right. Yep. You'd be there until the wee hours of the morning if you tried to do all of those things, (laughs) if it it seems anyway. And
5: totally burn out as well.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It would be a lot to sit through the SAT and then follow that with one or more subject tests. Um, You know, one thing I think is always very interesting, which is understanding a little bit about how these tests are used in the admissions process. So Can you talk to us a little bit about how they would be used in a committee, for example, when you were discussing an applicant?
5: Great question. So, um, the way I tend to think about subject tests is it's a, a, another point of validation, right? So, you know, we're looking through the transcripts. We see a, a specific grade for a course that we think we understand, you know, what an honors physics or an AP physics course is, is going to mean, right? And so what we then do is we can say, okay, so if a student has, you know, a, you know, a strong grade in that physics class, and then they also have a strong score on the physics subject test, then we feel like that grade has meaning, right? Mm-hmm. But there also can be alternatives to that too, right? So if you have a student who has, you know, straight A's in their classes and their subject tests are pretty low, then that A doesn't look quite as shiny. And mm-hmm. The, you know, the opposite can be true, too. Uh, one of my favorite examples is there's a physics teacher, Mr. Friedman, at Eastern High School in New Jersey. And, you know, he would often have students that have like a B-minus or a C-plus in his course, but they're rocking fives on the AP exam and they're getting 800s on the subject test. So that mm-hmm. C-plus looks a heck of a lot different in context than it does uh, for that A that gets a lower score. So it's just one other point of reference to try to validate what we think we know about the student's preparation.
1: Well, and you just mentioned AP scores. So that brings up a really good question, which is, can they help or counter AP exam scores? What's your sense of how that can, how subject tests and AP scores can work together or against each other?
5: Gotcha. Um, yeah, actually, I just had an email from, uh, from a father on Monday who had that pretty much that exact same kind of question. And um, on the math level two, the student got a 720, and they were worried that for their target schools, that might be a little bit on the low side. And the student took this when they were a, a sophomore in, in high school. And then last year in BC Calculus, they got a five on the AP exam. Mm-hmm. So, the five on the AP exam is going to be much more weighty than the 720 on a subject test that was taken two years ago on subject material that he hasn't seen since eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we kind of put that into the context of, you know, again, validating what we think we know, and depending upon what that mix looks like, we can make arguments for why we think that that five on the BC calc should be what we key in on as opposed to that 720 on math two. Right. So it's it's always within the context of the transcript of the order that they're taken, the dates that they're taken, the related coursework, and when they took it, all of that kind of factors into that discussion of how that score should be looked upon.
1: Right, right. And curious, if the student is thinking about retaking, I don't know where the student aspires to go. For me, I can think of schools where it would be fine to not retake and schools where I might say, well, I think you maybe should take that because we want to show off both the five and a higher score in the math too. What's your, what would you do or what are you recommending in that scenario?
5: And again, yeah, I think you're totally right that, you know, if you're looking at um, a Georgetown where it's one of three then, you know, the answer might be a little bit different. Um, then if it's an Ivy League school and you really want to kind of put your best foot forward and mm-hmm. the student thinks like, if I just brush up on some of that stuff that I haven't seen in a while, I could, you know, get a much higher score. Right. So, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of in the context of that counseling that we and the, the types of goals that they're reaching for that we would make those types of recommendations. So yeah. a 720 in a Stanford pool, uh, I would see that is, is potentially problematic. So I'd probably recommend alternatively for that student.
1: Right. Exactly. But it would be a less of an issue at some other schools. I would I would agree. Um, Exactly. Any any sense of, you know, uh, we do frequently work with students who are maybe going to be taking some AP exams and they're also going to be taking subject exams, subject tests at the end of junior year. Um, Similar prep. What do you think about prep? Should they prep do some special prep for these tests, in your opinion?
5: Definitely um, have prep for the subject test. Um, For many of the APs, there's going to be a significant overlap between what you were just preparing for the AP exam versus the subject test.
2: So, Mm -hmm. the
5: great thing about AP chemistry, for instance, is there's a 98% overlap. So, um, there's very little that's on the subject test that you would need to know uh, in addition to what's on the AP exam. However, you know, if you're looking, if you just took physics C, for instance, and you want to take the physics exam, only 53% of that is actually on the exam. So there's a lot of extra material that you have to study for Mm -hmm. the physics subject test that you didn't study in physics C. So, there's a a great chart, you can Google this, um, and it comes right up in terms of the overlap between AP exams and and subject tests. And that, I think, is a good barometer for how you should look at how much more you need to prepare for the subject tests versus your AP exams.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that brings up a good question around, how do you choose which subject tests to take, um, or how do you advise students to choose?
5: Great question. Um, Depends upon their goals to a certain extent. Um, In general, I tell them to focus on the subjects where they think they're most confident in a high score. And so, you know, if that's going to be math and chemistry and you're really good at chemistry, then focus on chemistry. But there are some schools like Carnegie Mellon and MIT that want to see it in specific subjects. So you also have to honor those requests as well if those are on your target list. But many schools like a Georgetown or a UVA that strongly recommend these types of um, exams, they're not as interested in, in exactly what you take, just that you have a representation in the subject area. So in those cases, I'm just, my advice to students is take the exams where you think you have the strongest chance of getting a high score.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think one, obviously one important thing to do is look at the schools you're applying to and the programs you're applying to and see if they specify a specific test or two that they would like you to take Not uncommon, for example, for engineering to request or require that you do a math two subject test and a science subject test. Uh, And I do recommend if engineers are prepared to do it, I strongly recommend you do the math two and physics because those are the things that are generally going to be the most relevant. But the myth that floats around a lot about these is, well, you need to have, it's kind of that myth These are myths. People, please listen. Um, The idea that you need to have a letter of recommendation from a math science teacher, and then you need one from a humanities teacher. Same concept with subject tests that you need one in math and science or math or science, and then you should have one in the humanities. All of that totally false. You need recommendation letters that say great things about you and you need subject tests that you can excel in. That is the priority. And if you can't excel in a math or science and humanities, take the ones you think you can excel at. Um, Mm -hmm. Big question that we have not addressed. And I left it to the end because I think this is the most important thing and probably the thing that for me, people get the most hung up on. And that is, who should plan to take these tests? These are not going to be required for every student. And in fact, I would say that many students are not going to need to worry about taking subject tests. So where do we think about, as, as people are listening today and thinking about, oh boy, now I have to worry about subject tests, who in your opinion needs to plan to take them and how do you figure out if it's something that needs to be part of your process?
5: That. Is a tough question. Um, In general, (laughs) the question is, um, you know, what are the schools that a student is aiming for? And if they are aiming for some of those elite colleges and universities, then subject test should probably be part of their planning. The caveat to that, however, is for students who are homeschooled. And uh, there are a good number of colleges and universities that for homeschooled students would like to see testing in these specific areas, again, as that validation point. So uh, there are less, certainly less selective schools that strongly recommend or require subject tests for homeschooled students. But beyond that, we're talking about, again, the elite schools. We're talking about the places like Georgetown. We're talking about um, you know MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Ivy, Stanford, those types of schools. So if you've got a student who is really strong in their class, is you know getting uh, mostly A's and very rigorous courses, it's a good idea to, at the end of sophomore and junior year, consider some of those options so you have them just in case you need them. Well, the difficulty is that if you wait till the end of the junior year, then first of all, junior year or spring is tough enough as it is. But when mm-hmm. you have to try to take three, um, you know, subject tests so that you can apply to Georgetown, that, that's tough to kind of pile on to, um, to a student in June of their junior year. So I would say, you know, think about, you know, what you perceive those targets to be. But if you have a high performing student, it's a good idea to have them just in case you need them.
1: And, and actually, that brings up a point that I didn't ask about, but I should mention, which is when do you take these? And in general, you're going to usually want to take them right at the end of the time when you're completing that subject material. So if it's a half year mm-hmm. course, you're going to want to try and take the subject test that Maybe in December, uh, if it is a full-year course, you maybe are going to want to try to take it in May or June. Um, although, as as Kenan noted at the beginning, not all subject tests are offered on every date that the SAT is offered, so that's something else you have to factor in. Um, what are your thoughts Kenan when a school you mentioned the highly selectives and I would say that my message to everyone listening is if you're aspiring to some of the most selective schools in the country you need to take subject tests and you need to do very well in them and by well we would de- we would define that as a 750 or above but for students who maybe aren't going to be aspiring to those most selective schools and if we take those out of the equation what are what are you uh, counsel for students who are applying to schools where subject tests are optional. They're maybe not strongly recommended, but they're optional, or maybe mm-hmm. they're using recommended, but but often optional. What do, what do you say in those situations?
5: I think for students, especially where they perform pretty well on those um, subject-specific exams, that this can be a way to boost your profile. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, for a student who um, does better on those subject tests than they do on like an ACT or an SAT, and they're applying to a test-flexible school like an NYU, then that represents an opportunity for them to shine in a way that's different and put their best foot forward in terms of their testing. So, um, for the kid who, you know, again, can zero in on that and and intends to score better, then that's a way that they can shine in a way that's a little bit different and just gives them a little bit more flexibility.
1: Right. Yep, I agree. I also agree that if a student, or I also would say that if a student does not perform well on these tests, better to simply not submit them than to submit scores that aren't going to be helpful. So um, we had an, exactly. a conversation, right? We had a conversation going um, amidst the team for someone who was applying to a couple of schools. I think Emory and Wake Forest were two of them where the tests are optional and the student currently is scoring at a lower range than we would normally recommend submitting. And in those schools, um, the advice that ultimately I think is being passed around Uh, Let's let me amend that. My advice is that if the student isn't able to get those scores up over 700, then I would just submit without those scores. And I think that's going to make for a stronger um, application in that in that area. Um, Mm Kenan, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining today. And and hopefully our listeners took away a lot of great information because you certainly shared lots of great information.
5: It's been my pleasure.
1: All right. Excellent. Uh, Don't go away. We are coming up to our segment on the latest admissions trends. And there's some really interesting stuff here. And you're not going to want to miss it.
4: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation.
1: All right, we are back, and I am really interested and uh, looking forward to sharing with you the latest trends in admissions. I think this is super helpful or will be super helpful for everyone, and I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Elise Krantz, who is a former admissions officer at Barnard uh, and Bennington. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. Thank you again for joining us today. We had, just for our listeners' sake, we have... Uh, we get together as a big team twice a year. And we recently had our meeting uh, in June, which we have every year in June. And one of the things that we go over during those meetings is the latest trends in both admissions and in college finance. And Elise put together a presentation for us In June that I thought was really excellent and that all of you might be interested in hearing yourselves. And so um, that's what you're here to share with us today. And I guess just to hop right in, um, maybe we could start with some of the updates that you're seeing to both the common app and the coalition app.
3: Sure. Um, There's big news around the Common Application. Um, Some of our listeners may already have discovered this um, if they're following it, the news. Um, But the Common Application recently underwent a really big visual overhaul. Um, The look of the application is a little more modern. It's sleeker. This was their intent. They really just wanted to sort of bring the application um, to make it a little more current for uh, today's use, to make it a little more stream. And a lot of the language too has changed on the application itself. They're just trying to make it more fun, more accessible, more user friendly for students who might want to fill it out, or at least sections of it out, on their iPhones or on their tablets. It'll be much easier for them to do that now. Um, so there's even a new logo. So it's just it's they're trying to make it. Um, not only fun, but also that, that nice visually appealing uh, look that a lot of, I think a lot of teens are expecting when they're going online mm-hmm. to see something that just catches their eye. So that was it sort of on the visual side, but I think in terms of the actual content, very little has changed. Like the essay questions, for example, have stayed the same. Um, the, the way students have to fill out their activities has stayed the same. Um, what is one of the bigger changes this year is that, colleges will now have the option of including a question on their supplements, so not in the main part of the Common App, but on a college-specific supplement where uh, colleges can ask students a question about who they are responsible for taking care of. And this is brand new this year. I don't even know, Beth, if you've learned about this yet because it's like no. brand, brand new. They announced this. How um, off the presses. Yeah, and so this was all based on it, it came out of Harvard School of Education. Uh, they're turning the Tide report about making caring common, and they're just trying to give students an opportunity to show colleges that you don't have to have a lot of flashy. Uh, experiences and activities on a resume, something simple but very important, like taking care of a loved one at home or having a responsibility like that, is really mm-hmm. important to colleges. And that's why this is an optional question that some colleges will likely be asking on their supplements. Um, that's just something new to... to- keep an eye out for um, and there have been some new colleges too that are now going to be accepting the common application um so far 60 or so colleges have announced this year that they will be accepting who were not accepting it last year for example penn state uh the university of pittsburgh and michigan uh, michigan state excuse me michigan was already on it um so there have been some nice changes um Although Susan, yes. those were from last year, the most current year, the University of Florida, Elon and um, University of South Carolina those were the big schools this year. the first group I announced were the big schools last year.
1: very excited about some of those because we definitely work with lots of students applying to all of the schools, both the ones who were added last year and the ones this year and so i um, this is a welcome development. Um, what about the the coalition which is something that we don't we haven't talked a whole lot about on the show but also another application that's available to students.
3: Yeah, so about 100 colleges are ex- we expect will accept the coalition. The coalition website doesn't quite have the updates available on their website to to have the most current roster of members who accept it, but it should be about a hundred or so. There have been a few changes of schools who will not be accepting it for this upcoming cycle. Um, For example, it was announced that Dartmouth and the university of Virginia will no longer be accepting the coalition. They will just be common app schools, um, which is interesting to note. Um, But there are Mm -hmm. still lots of colleges that do accept the coalition and the The coalition itself also underwent some changes, not so much visually, but more in terms of just making it easier to fill out, if anyone has experienced that before. It was not as intuitive. The form was just a little trickier, so they're going to make it um, just easier for students to understand the directions. And one of the biggest features of the coalition changes for this year is that students can now submit their SAT scores. Directly through the coalition, they link essentially their Common App, uh, excuse me, their College Board accounts,
2: mm-hmm.
5: which
3: administers the SAT, with the coalition, and so it can be just sort of one process applying to college and then also submitting your SAT scores through the coalition.
1: Right, which is kind of intriguing and a nice uh, a nice addition, I think. Although it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and um, making sure that you still maintain score choice and that there aren't any um, yeah chances for that to kind of mess up somehow and somehow you wind up submitting something that you didn't mean to submit
3: I know Um, we don't know exactly how it's going to look just yet but it it does seem to be a nice new change to the application Um, and I know this wasn't in my presentation in June but I did just want to mention that the University of California application also underwent a major overhaul this year Um, the website is up and running it's a slightly different web address Um, so it's now apply.university of California.edu, and very similar to the Common App, it was a visual overhaul and a language overhaul just to make it a little easier for students to understand the directions and make it a little more fun and engaging. Um, And that application, although the website is up and running, students cannot actually start filling that out until August 1st.
1: Okay. All right. So I want to get to some of this other stuff. You have so much great stuff and I don't want to run out of time. Next one, changes to ED, early decision and early action policies. There were a couple of big ones here.
3: Right. So um, it was announced, I think it was a few months ago, that Boston College, which has been sort of changing their policies with, with the types of the ways students can apply uh, to the college, whether it was restrictive early action or not, this year is new. This year they are dropping all forms of early action which is when you apply early but you're not bound to go. You just hear back early. It's sort of a nice bonus. So that's no longer Mm -hmm. going to be an option at Boston College. Instead, they are adding an early decision option. So if BC, Boston College, is your number one school, you love it, you've researched a lot of options, you now have the ability to commit to the school early through an early decision plan. Um, Somewhat similarly, the University of Virginia is adding early decision as an option, which is really big. There are not a lot of... Public universities out there that offer the binding early decision plan, but UVA now has it. They are keeping their early action policy as well, though. So, if you love the school but you're not ready to commit, early action can be a great choice for you.
1: Right, and I think we will revisit these two next year to see how this impacted uh, their admissions processes, if at all. Any time you introduce early decision, it can change the selectivity level and add a whole host of things that are currently unknown. So we will come back to that. Um, Test optional trends. These are, we've seen some interesting things here as well. Yeah. So the
3: number of schools who are uh, foregoing the testing requirements as part of their application has just increased uh, phenomenally since the FairTest.org website has been tracking it since 2005 or so. Um, just, it's every year. It seems like the numbers just keep jumping and jumping and going higher. Um, so there were some big announcements this past year, most recently, um, of schools that are test optional. Um, probably the biggest that sort of set the, the <laughs> cascading effect, I feel like, was the University of Chicago, which is one of the most selective schools in the country that is now test optional. It's a, big, it's a game changer. And um, some of the schools that more recently have announced that they are test optional are the University of Rochester, Bucknell University, the University of New Hampshire, which is it's not common to find a lot of public universities on that mm-hmm. on this list. Um, also, Marquette, Colby, University of Denver, University of San Francisco. So I do anticipate that we'll continue to see more of it, and I think it's it's honestly only a matter of time until. One of the IVs goes test optional. I think it's, it's going to happen at some point. Yeah. There's just been a lot of changes in this
1: area. I think so too, and in fact, I think we probably want to have a whole segment on what will that mean if that is what happens, because I think there are some other things going on, and there was a whole report from the University of Chicago about how brilliant their class was, even though they went test-optional, and I think there are some things going on there, and we're going to want to dig a little bit more into all the, the hearts and flowers and what it really means when a school like that goes test-optional, but that is mm. a conversation for another day, because we don't have time for all of that right now. Um Here's another huge one, selectivity and wait lists. So we're seeing some specific trends in terms of selectivity. uh, And then also wait lists are always a big deal every year.
3: Right, and we, we talk about this so much, how the media and and sometimes I feel like we 're a little guilty of it too, a little mm-hmm. bit you know we focus so, you know we focus on these ultra selective schools that 's oftentimes what a lot of students and parents are most interested in, but it is so important to remember that the national acceptance rate across the country is sixty five percent most colleges are admitting most students, um, so this was data that um, was recently published that I had found for the the meetings that we had recently um, is that it 's only I think these stats are amazing only one point two percent of colleges in the US admit fewer than ten percent of their applicants. Mm-hmm. And, and a total of 3% of U.S. colleges admit fewer than 20%. So it's, it's really the bulk of colleges that are admitting most of the students who are applying to them. It's just up at that very, very top group of, of schools where it's tight and it's, it's super competitive. Um, in terms of wait lists, since you mentioned that too, um, Oh, can we back up for a second? I forgot to mention. Just in terms of selectivity, there were some dramatic changes this past year in terms of schools that got even more selective that was a shock to us. I just wanted to mention um, Tulane University uh, had a decrease in they, – they went – they were They went from 17% last year to 13% this year, which was a decrease in a 23% drop in their uh, acceptance rate. Um, And Barnard, which is the school that I used to work at, went from 14%, already crazy selective, to 11%. They they dropped 21% in terms of their selectivity. Um, Yeah. That was interesting to note, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's scary is that I know that when I was at Penn, and it wasn't all that long ago, um, 17% acceptance rate was not that bad, you know, that was we were dealing with that. And I remember how difficult it was to admit students and how many great students that I was advocating for that ultimately we couldn't admit because we just had so many talented applicants. And when you think about how low those numbers are getting at so many other schools, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit scary, although, we, and we're going to do a segment on this, the answer is not to apply to more schools. Um, and in fact, that's a trend that I saw is that students that I worked with who applied to a more than reasonable number, which I would say 12 is the high number of applications I would recommend. The ones who submitted a lot more than that did not do that well. But anyway, um, waitlist trends. Yeah, so
3: the the number, the waitlist trends for this most recent cycle have not really been announced. And part of that reason is we're still kind of in the middle of it. Colleges might still actually still be offering waitlist um, students who were on the waitlist a spot. And that happens because oftentimes over the summer, students change their minds. Sometimes they, they deposit at more than one school. And then when they eventually let that school, that their second choice school, know I'm actually not coming, then a new spot opens up. And so another waitlisted student comes on. Um, but the general trends we saw was that, um, at least according to the national survey that was done by NACAC, uh, which is the National Association of College Admissions Counselors, um, it's 75% of the most selective institutions have a wait list. So this is common pretty much at most of the schools that a lot of students will be applying at. Um, And the general trend that I found this last year when I was looking at the stats from last year, 2018, was that colleges that this makes sense that colleges that generally have more applicants and more spots available that are larger schools they tend to have more uh, acceptances off of their waitlist um mm-hmm. but there were exceptions to that uh from last year um, some numbers that i thought were interesting um, for schools that were exceptionally generous for example american university in 2018 admitted 25% of their students waitlisted students um, mm-hmm. and they were accepted off of that waitlist so uh, at clemson for waitlisted students, 39% of them eventually got in. And at Mm -hmm. the University of Oregon, a whopping 66% of waitlisted students eventually got in. So those were sort of the positive numbers from waitlists. On the other side, there were just a slew of colleges that admitted zero students off the waitlist, even though they put thousands of applicants on that waitlist. For example, Emory Mm -hmm. waitlisted 5,000 students, and in 2018, they took zero. So waitlisted students... Numbers can change from year to year, and sometimes they can accept a few hundred, sometimes they accept zero. So we'll have to take a look um, in the next few months to see once those 2019 numbers come out how this most recent cycle was.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the one for me that was just mind-blowing is a school we just mentioned, and that is Tulane. They last year put 10,384 students on their wait list and admitted two. So... (laughs) We talk about wait lists um, and I think the reality is that unless you're uh, applying to a school where waitlist wait list is a tool that they intend to use, and I think the UCs use that, and boy, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, but there are some, usually often anyway, larger public schools that use intend to use the wait list. They intentionally put students on the wait list so that they can keep a tight rein on their incoming class, um, but some of these private schools that are a little bit smaller, Um, the numbers can be astronomical in terms of who's actually on the waitlist with you. Um, Yeah.
3: And I I love that MIT sort of bucks that trend though. MIT is very mindful of their waitlist. They only put a couple hundred students on their waitlist and they admit a very small number of them, but they're not going overboard. They're not like putting thousands and thousands
1: on the wait list. Right. So. I think Stanford's another one that I would call out as doing. They do a really great job of deferring only a handful of their early action, and by handful I mean usually under a thousand. Uh, and similarly, they don't put a whole lot of students on the wait list. They still put way more on than they could admit, but it's certainly nothing like ten thousand um, mm-hmm. students. Uh, okay. Last thing: recruiting trends, um, enrollment trends, things that you're seeing that maybe are related to, um, maybe related to the Varsity Blues scandal, maybe not. Um, just curious about some things you're seeing there.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a few colleges that have announced they have already revamped their policies for recruiting athletes because of the Varsity Blues scandal. Um, Stanford came out um, announcing how they're going to have uh, these these background checks for their, their athletes. Uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison also announced that they're going to make sure that they check the rosters, and they, they are absolutely clear that students who are being admitted under the umbrella of a recruited athlete actually are athletes who are on the team playing. Um, and I imagine that a lot of other colleges will be following suit. There will also likely be changes coming up, um, I imagine, in terms of the way students are recruited in terms of legacies. So these are when you're, if the parents attended the particular college and then the child is attending, do they get special preference? And for a long time, for a lot of schools, that answer has been yes. But there's been a lot of pushback lately, in part because of the, the Varsity Blue scandal and, and just the privilege overall that a lot of students have. Um, so that's something that we're going to be looking for, as well as just in terms of how students of color are being recruited because of the case at Harvard that's, that's currently ongoing just what's going to happen with underrepresented students of color and and will they still get some advantage in the process or will that perhaps be eliminated? Will colleges not be able to take that into account when they're doing a holistic review? So that's something we'll be looking for.
1: Yes, absolutely. And Elise, we will definitely have you back um, once we see where some of these trends have ended up. Um, So thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, well, thanks also to all of my guests today. Next week, Sally is going to be hosting and we're talking about safeties. When is a safety not actually a safety? Um, A conversation, unfortunately, we're having a little more frequently lately. Um, We're also going to be talking about early programs, things like early decision, early action, and whether or not those are right for you and how to decide. And um, since these are coming any minute, if they haven't already, understanding your college bill uh, so you don't have to stop listening just because your child is heading off to college because we still have great advice for you here. Um, We are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.